0: The universe cannot contain him. The greatness of God is evident when we look into the starry sky at night. We do this; we see the the stars and hint of the creation beyond, and we realize what the psalmist was saying when he said that the heavens declare the glory of God. Anytime I do this, I'm always impressed at the the awe and the crea- and I'm impressed and in awe at the creative powers and just the the power of our our God. I remember the first time that. I noticed that, that idea of Psalm 19 and 1 coming true. We were out in the field in McAllister, Army ammunition plant there, doing some training when I was in the National Guard after I got off active duty. And we were out one night, and and a typical Oklahoma storm came in. We were laying there, and it was about 2 in the morning. and, And suddenly, you hear just the wind Roaring and rushing And all of the little tents we had made Were being lifted and flown over And the, we got up and we were trying to collect our stuff And figure out what to do And, and the trees were bending But it was still a, a clear night So you could see the stars and everything I just remember thinking Man, God is, God is awesome God is powerful I mean, He is a, a mighty and a great God And we we see this and we think about this and we know that the Bible says that God is infinitely powerful. He never gets tired and he can do anything that he wants to do. But I wonder, in spite of all that the Bible teaches about the power and the greatness of God, is it possible that we limit what God can and will do in us, through us, and for us through our doubts? Is it possible that there is a disconnect in our lives from what we know the Bible to teach to what we expect God will do? Is it possible that our thoughts of who God is and what God is like and what God could do are far too small and are not worthy of the God described in the Bible? I think they are at times. And if that's the case, how do we overcome? How do we overcome that? I mean, how, how, do we, how do we move beyond doubts that, that hinder what God will do in us, through us, and for us? And to come to the place where we believe and we expect God to do all that He has said He would do. Where we believe that God is that great and He will show that greatness in us, through us, and for us. And we not only just say we believe it, but we, we fully expect that to happen in our lives. That's what we're going to talk about today is how to overcome this. Turn to Mark chapter 6 in your Bibles. If you have the Pew Bible, that is on page 765. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. And then he went out from there and came into his own country, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these sayings, and what wisdom is this which was given to him, that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Now he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about in the villages in a circuit teaching. The title of the message this morning is, Can My Doubts Limit God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. And we praise you, God, for your greatness and your goodness. Father, we know that your word says that the heavens declare your glory. Lord, we know that you have demonstrated your power and your works throughout Scripture, in creation, in redemption, in so many ways. And God, while we know this with our minds, Lord, there is often a disconnect from what we know in our minds to what we expect in our lives. And God, I know that I do not want to be that way. Lord, I do not want to doubt you. I I do not want to to create you in my mind in a way that makes you far smaller and far less powerful than you are. Father, I want to to know you as you are. I want to experience you as you are. I I want to see your power at work in me, through me, and for me. And I know that we all do. So today, God, help us to look at your word and help us, God, to, to see areas that we might hinder you. And help us to find ways to overcome that. God, that we would believe you, we would trust you, and we would make life decisions based off of who you said you were and what you said you would do. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech as I speak your word. Let it go deep into our hearts and bring change into our lives. Help us, God, to live differently tomorrow because of what's happened in here today. Work in us, God, and draw us closer to you. Show us anything that hinders our lives or keeps us from being who you want us to be And God, whatever you do in us, through us, or for us, we'll give you all the praise and all the glory, for you deserve it. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. What we see in this passage is pretty interesting, I think. What we see in verses 2 and 3 particularly. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, has gone out, he has preached, he has confounded the people, he has taught with kind of an authority that no one else has. He has done miracles, he has cast out demons, and he has done great things. But he has done it all outside of his hometown. And when he comes back to his hometown and he begins to teach, there there is a... Obviously, they understand because they're talking about the where did they, he get this teaching, right They're astonished at it. He, he didn't go to the, the rabbinical schools. How is he able to speak with such authority and such wisdom? Where does all of this come from? But then it says, I like it says, that they were offended at him. Right? And what they were offended at is, is they knew him, right? He grew up in their midst. They knew his family. They knew what he was like as a kid. And they looked at him and they said, how can, how can this guy that we saw grow up, how could he really be the Messiah? How could this guy really be the one that we've all been waiting for? Right? Their, their focus was all wrong. They were focused on the guy that they knew and not on the stuff that he had done and the things that he had said. And because... They focused in the wrong areas. They doubted. Yes, he's done great things, but come on, it it just can't be him. And because of of their doubts, it limited what he would do in their midst. And and I believe he would have done more. He did some things. He, He healed a few sick people. but He would have done more, but he didn't. Because they doubted. Now I've heard some take what we see in this passage and say that God is only as powerful as we believe Him to be. That if we believe God is all-powerful and can do all things, then He can. On the other hand, if we don't believe God can't, then God can't. That God's greatness and God's power, they rise and fall on us and on our faith in Him. I'm going to be honest with you, I have a real problem with that. I mean, the the God I see in Scripture repeatedly states things like, I can do anything I want and no one can stop me. He, He does conquer Pharaohs who do try to oppose Him, who don't believe in Him. Their lack of faith did not stop Him at all. Yet here we see Jesus who is God in the flesh. Set out and was willing to do more, could have done more, but didn't do more because of their doubts. So, how do we reconcile the teaching that God can do anything He wants and nothing can stop Him with the fact that Jesus, as God in the flesh, didn't do things even though because the people did not believe? Here's how I understand it right here I cannot limit what God can do. But my doubts may limit what God will do. Jesus still could have healed everyone there. And done everything that he wanted to do. But because of their doubts, he did not do it. God's greatness and God's power is not dependent upon us in any way. He does not need us to be great. He just is great. But... God may not demonstrate His greatness and His power in our lives, through our lives, and for us in our lives, because of our doubts about His ability to do that. It's not that He can't. It's that He He won't. Our doubts can limit, not what God can do, but what God will do. Now, I know for me, I don't want to limit God in my life. I want, I mean, I read the, the Bible, and I see a God who does great things through people. I, I see a God who does great things in people. And I see a God who does great things for people. And, and I want that, and I look at that, and I think, that's what I want for my life. I don't want to be like the people here who miss out on what God can do, because I'm just focused on the wrong things. I don't want to miss out on on what God wants to do because I have doubts or because I have convinced myself that the world is different and God just doesn't act like that anymore. I want, I want whatever God has to give. I do not want to make it to heaven and find out there could have been more in me, through me, and for me from God, but I did not believe and so I did not experience. And I'm sure you're the same way. So how do, we, how do we overcome? Because I, I'm betting that we all probably have doubts in some areas. I'm sure none of us are living the kind of things that we see in Scripture. And for we've got reasons as to why it's okay and reasons as to why it doesn't happen. But what it really boils down to is we don't, we don't believe. We don't expect. We have doubts. Doubts. How do we overcome those doubts so that we can experience the power of God in us, through us, for us? I think there's three ways. Three, three areas of our life that we need to bring into check. Number one is we need to be honest about our doubts. We need to be honest about our doubts. When we talk about faith, I believe this is one of the most important things to talk about. Be honest about our doubts. Because chances are, there are areas where we all have doubts. Maybe people we prayed for to be saved never got saved. Maybe things we expected to happen didn't happen. And our our standard and our beliefs has just kind of lowered and lowered and lowered. And so there there are doubts in our lives. But we've been taught that that's not right. We've been taught that you can't doubt. That if you doubt, you're, you're a terrible Christian. If you doubt, no, God will never work in your life. If you doubt, and so we cover it up. We cover it up with spiritual sounding things. Right? We'll post on Facebook, I'm having problems, but God is my victory. And deep down, we really don't believe it. But we post it because it sounds good. When we pray for people, we'll try to sound positive. God, we know that you're the healer and that you can do all things. God, work in this situation. But deep down, we don't believe it's going to happen. And what we need to do is move beyond a fake faith to have an honest faith. An honest faith confesses our doubts. And I want to show you in Scripture that this is okay and that God still honors an honest faith. Flip ahead a few chapters to Matthew chapter 9 or Mark chapter 9, I'm sorry. We're going to start in verse 14. And really we're just going to kind of go through this quickly. But in the first part of the gospel of Mark, Jesus takes James, John, and Peter up on the mountain to pray. There he is transfigured before their eyes. They see him in a little bit of his glory. And they're amazed. They come down from the mountain. And in verse 14, it says that he comes to his disciples. He saw a great multitude around him and scribes disputing with him. Right? There's there's confusion. There's masses. There's people. And they're arguing. And they're fussing. And they're fighting. And so Jesus, they see him in verse 15. And they're all greatly amazed. And they come running to him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered. And he said, teacher. I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, foams at the mouth, gnashes at his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, they should cast it out, but they could not. So this guy, he has a massive problem. His son is demon-possessed. And it has been going on all of his life, we'll find out in a little bit. And he knows that nobody else can help him. Thus far, he's probably tried to go to the Pharisees and religious leaders and get them to fix it, and they couldn't. He's heard about Jesus and the things that he had done, and he goes to find Jesus, but he's not there, so he finds his disciples. And they try to cast out the demon, and they try to fix the problem, and they can't do it. And it says, he answered and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought him to him, and when he saw... Him immediately, the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground, and he wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often it's thrown him into the fire and the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus gives a statement that is a key statement for all of life. If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Right? If you can do anything, Jesus, help. Jesus said, if you can believe, everything is possible. And I love how the father answers. Immediately the father cried out, and he said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I love that. What an honest guy. Right? He is, this has been going on all of this kid's life. If he is like others in Scripture, they have gone places and tried to get it fixed and everything has failed. Don't you imagine that this father, who is likely a Jew, has been praying for God to fix it. So all of these years... He's prayed and nothing has happened. He's taken him to others that should have helped and nothing has happened. He has heard about Jesus that he is different and he took him to him, but his disciples couldn't help and nothing happened. And then Jesus himself comes down and says, I can do it if you believe. And the guy says, I believe. But I've got some issues. I mean, can't you, can't you understand that? Can't you understand the father's doubts and his wrestling with saying, I believe completely. I can I can. I, I, again, I don't know how you are. But there are things I've been praying for for years that have never happened. Right? There, are, there are people I've prayed to be saved that are no closer to God than they were when I started. There are things I've expected in my own life to happen that have yet to come to pass. And I look at the promises of God and I see that I'm praying in the will of God. And I'm praying to live and do the things that God wants me to do. And yet, so I say, I believe. Time and time again, it's not working out like I thought it would. There's doubts. There's questions. There's fears. That is probably where many of us are. And again, we've, we've been taught that this isn't right. We've been taught that, that these doubts are sinful. That these doubts are wrong. And that we have to have a, a perfect faith. Right? You, when you pray... You absolutely, 100% have to believe that God is going to answer or nothing happens. Right? Have you heard that before? Anybody ever heard that teaching, read a book on prayer that said, you just got to believe, brother, and if you don't believe, it ain't going to happen. Now, I find that discouraging. I find that frustrating because I believe, but I can't think of 12 times in my life where I've had a perfect faith. I believe God can do all things. But I, I wrestle with always believing He's going to do it. I, I pray for God to heal my daughter. Every day. And I believe He could if He wanted to. And I expected it to be done long before seven years. And thus far it's not happened. But I still pray and I believe. But I'm going to be honest with you years of waiting, and lots of people praying, there's a struggle to have expectation to believe that He will. I don't hardly ever have that 100% faith. There are always doubts mingled with my faith. And if you can relate to that, then here's what I want you to know, and I hope this will be as freeing for you as this has been for me. That's okay. It's okay to have doubts that mingle with your faith. It's okay to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's okay to wrestle with expectation. It's okay to wrestle with, if this is true, then why has it happened yet? It's okay. But what's not okay is trying to hide it. What's not okay is trying to sound overly spiritual. And trying to cover your doubts with extra statements that cover them up. What is better is to have an honest faith. To be honest with God about your doubts. To say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And I believe this is true for several reasons. I have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. My relationship with God and my relationship with Christ is more than master and servant. And as I read scripture, the people who had deep relationships with God were always honest with God. David David wrestled often with doubts. God, I haven't done anything wrong. Why is my life falling apart? God, I feel like you've abandoned me. Where are you? God never smote him. God never killed him. God never showed displeasure with David's doubts and his honesty. I'm convinced that, God did not have a, that David did not have a deep relationship with God in spite of his honesty. I believe David had a deep relationship with God because of his honesty. Not being honest about our doubts doesn't hide them from God. We serve an omniscient God. He knows everything about everything. He knows the thoughts that you think and the desires that you have. Whether you never express any of those at all, they're all aware. So what that means is if you have doubts, you're not hiding them from God by not confessing them. You know what happens when we hide something, try to hide it from God and don't confess it and don't talk about it? It builds a barrier between us and God. Just think about it in any relationship you have. If you have a relationship with someone, your spouse, and you're, maybe you're angry at them about something, but you don't want to talk about it, so you hide it. Does that make things better? Does it, does it all go away all of a sudden? Does your relationship just continue to get deeper and better? Or does it build a wall that's always a little bit there? Unless you're vastly different than, than me, it always builds a little wall that's there. But you know what breaks that wall down? You know what heals the relationship and helps it to grow deeper? Saying, here's the problem. Here's how I feel. Here's what's going on. That honesty breaks it down. And and sure, there may be tension at first. But in our marriage, you know what that honesty has done? It's made us have a deeper marriage. A deeper relationship. A better love for one another. That's the same thing that happens when we're honest with God. Right now, if you have doubts, but you're holding them and you're hiding them, God's up there going, I'm just waiting on you to talk to me about that because I already know. And the moment you begin to confess that to God, the moment you begin to say, I believe, but help me not to doubt. Help in my unbelief. It's going to be like unclogging a pipe and just flood of grace and goodness and love are going to flow to you from God and your relationship with him is going to grow deeper and better. Than it's ever been. Now as great as that is to know. It's even greater to know that God honors. That honest faith. Because look at what happens. The dad cries out I believe but help my unbelief. Jesus saw that the people came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you to come out of him and enter him no more. The spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, came out of him, and he became as one and dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, you don't have a perfect faith. Come back when you do. He didn't say, you're a horrible human being for not fully believing in me. I think you should go to hell. He didn't smite him with a lightning bolt for confessing his doubts. Jesus said, I can deal with that. I can work with that. And he honored an honest faith. And he honored an honest faith then. And I'm telling you, he'll honor an honest faith now. There is nothing wrong with you if you wrestle with doubts. If you're a human and you live in this world and you struggle with the world, the flesh and the devil, you're going to doubt at times. I I, I don't think there's any way not to. Those doubts do not keep you from experiencing God in your life. Those doubts do not keep you from experiencing what God can do in you, through you and for you. If, if you are honest with him about it. If you just say, Lord, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He honors an honest faith. And through that, he will work in us, through us, and for us. A second action that we need to take is we need to ask God to stretch us. Ask God to stretch me. And there is a passage in the Old Testament that I I love that shows this, I think, better than any other. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 4. It's page 288, I believe, in the Pew Bible. In 2 Kings 4, there's a woman with a problem, a widow woman with a problem. Verse 1 it says it was a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets Cried out to Elijah saying Your servant, my husband, is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord And the creditor is coming to take away my two sons to be his slaves Now here's the issue You could become, a man could enroll in the school of the prophets And be a prophet of God somehow And this woman was married to, one such, uh, to a man that had done that But he had died And he died with them apparently in great debt. Women in this culture had very little opportunity to earn money. There was very little she could do to make the money. So the creditors came due. And there was no bankruptcy protection. She couldn't file for bankruptcy and they couldn't take it. Instead, there was basically debtor's prison. Your creditor could come into your house and take your stuff as payment. Or, in extreme conditions... Your creditor could come and take your children first and then you and make them slaves. And they would work until they paid until they worked enough that paid off the amount that you owed. That's the condition she was in. She had no money. She had no means of making money. The creditor had basically sent word. I'm coming to collect and your sons are what I'm collecting. And they'll be my slaves for a a maximum of six years. Well, that's a, that's a big situation. That's a big problem. And she goes to Elisha for help. Now, we need to understand about going to Elisha. Elisha was the main prophet of God at this time. He had taken over for Elijah. He was basically the main spokesman for God. She was not just going and saying, Elisha, can you give me some money? Right? She wasn't going to him and saying, what can you as a man do for me? She was going to Elisha so he could find out from God, so that she could get help from God. That's what she knew. I need God to help me. Elisha's the man that speaks for God. What do I do? And so, Elisha says, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And then he said, go. Go. Borrow vessels from everyone, from all your neighbors. Every vessel, or empty vessels, do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons and pour it into more vessels and set aside the full ones. So she went from him and shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now, I want you to notice the faith that's going to be required in resolving the issue. She has a jar of oil. And my understanding is that her explanation of a jar of oil is meant to be a small jar. She's not having a big jar of oil. She has a small jar of oil. And Elisha says, basically, go get pots and pour the oil into them. what, What good is a jar of oil going to do in a pot? And he says, don't just get a few. You get all you can. And then you shut the door. And then you just start pouring it in there until you fill one up and you go from one to the next, to the next, to the next. Now, for her to respond to this in any way is going to take faith. She has to believe that God's going to do something through that little bitty jar of oil she's going to pour out. She acts on that faith and she goes and she does it. And notice verse 6, because this is kind of the key of what we're talking about. Because what Elisha's going to tell her to do is take the oil, sell it, pay her debts. But verse 6 is kind of the key. Now, when it came to pass the vessels were full. She said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. So the oil ceased. Now, I want you to catch what's happened there. When did the oil cease? Before or after she ran out of space to pour the oil out? After. What if she had had ten more barrels to pour the oil into? The way I understand this and the way it seems to read is... God would have used that and continued to fill up ten more barrels of oil. So what what limited what God would do in her life at that point? Her capacity to accept it. Her capacity to deal with it. God, the God who did fill up the jars she had, could have easily filled up a million more jars if she had had them. Her, Her capacity, it limited what God was going to do. Now, this was enough. It took care of her needs, and it helped her. But The key thing I want us to understand is this. Very many times, what limits God's work in us, through us, and for us is not the power of God. It's our capacity to, e- to expect. It's our capacity to believe. It's our capacity to do. Right? We, we come to a place in our service to God and our faith where we say, I just, I can't go anymore. I'm, I'm at my limits. I, I've stretched as far as I can stretch. I've done as much as I can do. I'm at capacity. There's no way I can endure more. There's no way I can do more. There's no way I could pray more. There's no way I could hope more. And in that moment when we say, I, I can't. We're limiting our capacity. And we're limiting God. And you say, "Well, that's great, but but you don't understand my situation. I really am at the breaking point. I honestly can't go any further. I can't deal with any more. And I, I don't doubt that you can. But let me ask: Who in here can quote Philippians four thirteen? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, as parents, how many of us have told our kids that? can do all things. Right? But do we believe it? Because if we really believe all things is all things, there shouldn't be a limit to our capacity. We, we should basically be limitless. And what we need to do is, because there are going to be times where we reach that breaking point and we say, I really don't think I can go anymore. I, I really don't think I can do anymore. I can hope anymore. It, there's a point To where when you hope and you believe and you pray and it doesn't come to pass, it begins to be an ache, a hurt deep inside. And it is easier to let that hurt go and to not deal with it anymore than it is to continue to hope, to continue to pray, to continue to believe when it just is a source of discouragement and pain and anguish. And in that moment we have a choice. We can quit, say, I've gone as far as I can go. And when we do that, we absolutely limit what God is going to do in us, through us, for us. Or we can say, God, stretch me. God, help me in this area. Help me to have more faith to believe. Help me to trust you more. Stretch me in whatever way you need to stretch me so that that my capacity is more. Because we serve a God who has unlimited power. We serve a God who can give unlimited blessings. What limits our capacity is our willingness. It's just saying "I, I can't. I think the reason we don't Pray for God to stretch us Is because stretching is, is painful that Anything that requires that sort of growth It hurts Because that means we have to, to go further Than we've ever gone before It means we have to endure more Than we've ever endured before We have to, to be willing to, to just keep going Even when suddenly it's not better Like we hope it would be God stretching us is not a, a painless experience it requires us to get to the end of ourselves and then to keep going. Trusting that God will pull out and make a way. But I think this is the path to experiencing the power of God in us, through us and for us. Who in the Bible did not have to go to that point? Can, can you name anyone? Can you name, I mean think Moses. He's killed a man hiding in the desert go back to the people who rejected you earlier to Pharaoh who wants you dead and say let my people go now we give Moses a lot of props and a lot of credit and we should but I'm going to tell you I think that had to stretch him some if it didn't if he wouldn't have started making excuses I can't no one will believe me I don't think they'd expect me that I know you God had to stretch him to make room for that Joshua to take over for Moses. That was huge. I mean, can you imagine Moses? I mean, you think about the way people think about Moses today. Can you imagine living in his shadow? He dies. You're the guy. Up to this point, you have been Moses' personal assistant. And now everybody's expected to follow you. Those are some mighty big shoes to fill. I'm going to say that that was a stretch. That's why God repeatedly told him, I will be with you wherever you go. He had to be stretched. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Matthew, the tax collector. Get up from his tax collecting table and follow Jesus. No going back after that. It's a stretch. Trying to then talk to Jews about Jesus. Hey, I was a tax collector and I was a traitor to the country, but I want to tell you about the Messiah who came to me. Some stretching that has to go on there. Anything, anytime we want to serve the Lord and we want to... We want to experience His power in us, through us, and for us. It's always going to take us beyond our personal capabilities. It'll always take us beyond our natural limits. Because it's only when we go beyond our natural limits do we begin to walk by faith. Up until that point, we are walking by sight. I can do it. As long as I can do it, I don't really need God to do anything. As long as I am physically capable, mentally stable, and I can accomplish it on my own, I don't really need God. I can give a nominal thing. Well, if I wasn't for God, I couldn't have done it. But it's only when I get to the end of my own personal capabilities and I say, I'm still going. At that moment, we leave walking by sight and we begin walking by faith. And it's only out there where the good stuff happens. So if you've reached your max, and you don't think you can go anymore, you're probably right. And that probably means you're on the right path. That probably means you're going in the right direction. And what you need to do now is let God stretch you beyond your natural limits. And begin to walk by faith, and not by sight. When we ask God to stretch us, we are saying, I do not want... My capacity to believe, my capacity to endure, my capacity to to do, to hinder you in any way, God. I want all that you have, all that you can do in me, through me and for me. We got to, we have got to begin to pray. God, stretch me. And then the final thing is enlarge God's view Enlarge my view of God's plan for my life. I tried to find a way to make that snazzier, but I just couldn't figure out a way. So, there's your paragraph for a point. We've got to enlarge our view of God's view of our lives. Part of having a small view of God is that we have a small view of what God wants for us. What God plans for us. And what we have to do is we have to adjust and bring what we think is acceptable for our life. And bring it into conformity with what God says He really wants for our life. And, and a good example of this in the Old Testament is Abraham. And look at, when God called Abraham, look at the promises He gave him. The Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country and from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Right there's the, there's the call of faith. Come and follow me. I'll take you to the right place. But He gave him promises. Right? He said, one, I'll make you... A great nation Now this is huge At this point Abram has no children And God says I'm going to give you So many children You'll be a huge nation All on your own From your descendants God says I will bless you I will bless you I will pour out Goodness and things And stuff upon you I will make Your name great People of the world Will know Who Abram is If you step out And you begin to follow me I will make you a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will protect you. I'm taking you to a place that you do not know, but I know. I'll be with you. I'll take care of you. I'll make sure that it's all okay. And I will make you a blessing to all the families of the earth. But ultimately, that was fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the descendant of Abraham. Through him, all the people of the world have been blessed. Now, do you think... Abram sat in his town and raised his family. He ever had thoughts of his life where he would say, I will be a great nation. God, The God of the universe will protect me in a massive extent. He will make my name great. He will ensure that I am a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. I mean, if someone just came up to you and said, I'm going to be a big nation... I'm going to be a blessing to everybody on earth, right? What would you think about them? I would think they were delusional. And yet that was God's plan for Abram's life. That was what God wanted to do for him. So what Abram had to do was say, I never would have imagined my life could be that much. But God has said he would. So I'm going to to switch what I believe And I'm going to accept what God has said. I'm going to enlarge my view until it reaches and it's inconsistent or it's consistent with God's view. That's what we have to do. Do you know that while we haven't been given those promises, we have been given many promises as well. Great promises that I'm convinced most of us do not truly embrace. We do not have a large enough view of what God wants for our lives. Let me give you just a couple. One I'm a new creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, all things have passed away. Or old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You know, I've talked to enough people to know that there are plenty of believers who live defeated lives because of what they did before they were saved. They are held back and they are hindered by who they were then and not who they are now. And God, God didn't say... I'm changing your morals. God didn't just change our morals. God didn't just change our clothes. But God made us a new creation. We have been born again. We have been given a new mind and a new heart and new desires and a new will. We are not the same. Do you really think? As you think about who you were before you were saved. And think about who you are now. Do you think that you are entirely different? You are a new creation in Christ. Or do you think, Ah, oh, there's just no way I could do this, because of what I did then. We need to enlarge our view of, God, of, of God's plan for our life. How about this? Jesus is on my side. I love this. This is my, one of my very favorite verses of all time. My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. What is God's absolute desire for all believers? That we may not sin. And we know that. But we miss the next part of this verse, because notice what it goes on to say. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When is Jesus on your side? Is Jesus on your side when you're living a good, holy life and you're always doing what he expected? And in the moment you blow it, Jesus turns against you and hates you and is looking for a reason to cast you into hell. Sadly, that's the way many of us live. In many of our minds, Jesus is only on our sides while we're doing everything exactly the way he wants us to. The moment we sin, Jesus turns his back on us. And the Bible says that is simply not the case. That when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's like the defense lawyer. And it's Jesus who is our righteousness. I mean, I want you to understand, there is never a point in your life when your righteousness or your salvation is dependent upon your own personal goodness. You're not going to go to heaven because you lived a holy life. You're going to go to heaven because you believe in Jesus and that He died for your sins and rose again and He made you righteous. Now, there is something in that that is both humbling and powerful. It's humbling. Because that means it's never really about what I've done. That I am not saved. And Jesus is not on my side because I'm better than other people. I'm saved because of Jesus. Jesus is on my side because of who he is and what he's done. It's a pretty humbling thought. But it's powerful too. Because when I blow it, guess what? I'm still righteous because of Jesus. He is still my advocate with the Father. That never changes. I mean, do you live in such a way that you know Jesus is always on your side? Or do you live feeling that Jesus is just always angry at you a little bit or on the brink of becoming angry at you because you're just not up to snuff according to your mind and your thoughts? What difference would it make if you truly understood and believed that Jesus is always on your side? You need to enlarge... Your view of God's plan for your life. Or or how about this? I am victorious through Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Always a victor. Now, does that mean we don't struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil? No, we will always struggle against the world, the flesh and the devil. But what it means is we fight that battle from a place of victory, not a place of defeat. Do you know the most common thing we, I think many of us, live and believe as Christians? We are poor, we are pitiful, we are powerless. So we just live defeated lives. Never going to overcome. It's not possible that I could overcome. Woe is me, this is just the way I am. That's not the picture painted in Scripture. We are not poor, pitiful, or powerless. We are rich in Christ. We are powerful in Christ. We are victors through Christ. He has already won the battle. We get to take part in that. I mean, do you look at your life and do you really believe that you are a a victor, or as Paul said in Romans, more than a conqueror through Christ? You should. If you don't have that view, you need to enlarge your view of God's plan for your life. Or well, God has a divine purpose for my life. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let I me mean, think about that. The God of the universe saved you because he wanted to. And he saved you he had a plan for your life, something he planned for you to do. You are not his second choice. You are not someone he has saved and said, oh, I guess you'll be a second class citizen. You can sit on the pews, but you can't ever go do anything for me. I'll, I'll accept you here, but you're not there. Nope. He saved you to do something. And, and this is, doesn't matter where we have came from or what we were. Um, Kelly and I used to know this guy, and he's passed away a few years ago. His name was Eddie Hicks. And Eddie Hicks, before he got saved, was a, a drug dealer. And he was a, a boss drug dealer. And he was a violent drug dealer. One, one of the dealers under him once did not pay him what he owed him. And Eddie got in a car with this guy and had a driver go 50 miles an hour. In order to kind of show him he was serious, he threw him out of the car at 50 miles an hour. He was a, a violent felon, dangerous man, got caught, went to prison, got saved, came out. Some churches would not accept him because they knew where he was, where he came from and what he had done. And so he just he found a church that would. And eventually he began to start preaching on his own. But guess who he preached to? And he didn't go and preach to the nice communities because those people wouldn't accept him. He wasn't educated and he read and hollered an awful lot. Um. But he went to the drug dealers that used to work for him. He went to the people that he used to sell drugs to. He went to the prostitutes that lived in the area where he came up at. And he, he offered them a way out of that lifestyle. He, he put them up in houses and he gave them, helped them to get an education and he helped them to learn, learn tasks and skills so that the women could do more than sleep with men for money and have a better worth for their life. Hundreds. Drug dealers, drug addicts, and prostitutes came to know Jesus Christ through Eddie Hicks' ministry. Thousands were brought out of that lifestyle, even ones that were never saved, were taken up, cleaned up from drugs, given new lives, sent out to be productive members of society. He lived a divine purpose for his life, despite coming from an awful harsh background. The God who had a purpose for Eddie Hicks has a purpose for you. We're not meant to drift through life wondering if there's meaning and significance. We are meant to live purposeful life that brings glory and honor to God. And if that's not your view, you need to enlarge your view of God's plan for your life. And then this is the final one. I'm an ambassador for Christ. I love this. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Everywhere we go as believers, we represent Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And anytime we begin to talk to people about Jesus, invite them to church, invite them to Him, begin to share what He has done for our lives, it's as though God Himself were speaking through us, drawing them and working on them to bring them to salvation in Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm going to tell you, that is an awesome thought. The only hope I have in what I do is that God is speaking through me, drawing people to him. And every one of us, that's not just for me as a preacher. That is for all of us on different scales and in different ways. But this is who we all are. I mean, do you... Have an idea in your mind that you are truly a representative of Jesus Christ everywhere you go. And that every time you talk to somebody about Jesus, God speaks through you, working in their heart, trying to draw them to Him. And that through your efforts, God will save some. How awesome is that? To know that God will work through us to make an eternal difference in someone else's life. I mean, we were were all meant to make an impact on the world around us for Jesus Christ. And God has given us everything we need to do it. We just have to do it. I mean, do you think of yourself as that way? Someone that God could use to bring others to Him? You should. That's who you are. You need to enlarge your view of God's plan for your life. And there's so many more. And one thing I want to point out. This isn't enlarge your view of your plan for your life. And say, well, I'm going to be a millionaire and this is what God's going to do. If it works for you, let me know. I'm going to try it too. But the best I can tell, that's not the promise. The promise isn't God will make us whatever we think we ought to be. The promise is God will make us what He has said He would make us. And if God has promised something... For believers. Well that's for you. And that's for me. And we are those things. I mean is your view of your life. Is it big enough to encompass. You being a new creation. Is it big enough to encompass. Jesus always being on your side. Is it big enough to encompass you. Being a victor. And not a poor pitiful. Powerless defeated person. Is it big enough to. Include you having a divine mission from Almighty God. Being His ambassador to the world. It should. And if it doesn't, you need to enlarge your view of what God wants to give you. What God wants to do for you. What God wants to do in you. And what God wants to do through you. Sometimes, our God... Is far too small, and we need to enlarge that and embrace all that He has said, and say that is me. And I—we are out of time. I am not a proponent of positive confession and name it and claim it. And that's a surprise to most of you. But let me say, I have founded my prayers.